And now for brief introductions, I am delighted to be hosting one of my favorite grand rounds of the year. Today we will hear from eight of our Providence St. Vincent internal medicine residents who will presenting work that they have prepared for the Oregon chapter of the American College of Physicians meeting, which will be held later this week in Salem, Oregon. Their presentations include some of the most fascinating and challenging clinical cases in our hospital this year, as well as their work in quality improvement. I will have each of our speakers introduce themselves as they come up to the podium, and we will have about uh, two minutes or so per speaker uh, for questions, if there are any um, burning questions out there. So without further ado, welcome to today's very special Medical Grand Rounds. Thank you for this reminder. It just needs to be put in the box or mailed by election day. And now Dr. Abby Linseth. <laughs> Given its relatively low incidence, severity of presentation, and mortality exceeding 50%, Clinicians must consider both common and uncommon causes of acute liver failure to promptly initiate potentially life-saving interventions. This is particularly true in the case of an immunocompromised patient where the incidence of herpes simplex virus as a cause of acute liver failure increases. This is a case of a 76-year-old female with rheumatoid arthritis on a stable, moderate dose of methotrexate who presented for diffuse jaundice and one month of progressive painful oral ulcerations as seen in the image. These ulcerations were also present throughout her um, oral mucosa. Um, she recently completed a two-week course of oral valley cyclovir for HSCV positive stomatitis and was using four grams of acetaminophen daily. She does not consume alcohol. As shown in the first table, she was found to have evidence of progressive severe liver dysfunction and a new coagulopathy. An acetaminophen level was mildly elevated and methotrexate was undetectable. HIV, hepatitis A, B, and C were also negative. An abdominal and hepatic duplex ultrasound were normal, as seen in table two and three respectively. She was started on N-acetylcysteine and IV acyclovir given her relative immunosuppression and recent HSV stomatitis while awaiting further confirmatory testing. With common causes ruled out, a broader workup and differential were initiated. An autoimmune hepatitis panel was negative and serum HSV PCR were also negative. Additional workup including viral causes such as EBV and CMV were also negative. Her ferritin and LDH were significantly elevated, but did not meet criteria for hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Given her age and comorbidities, she was determined not to be a candidate for liver transplantation and rapidly developed fulminant hepatic failure. She passed on hospital day four. Although a rare cause of acute liver failure, with acetaminophen being the number one cause in the United States as shown in the pie chart, 
HSV was high on our differential given her recent positive stomatitis and immunocompromised status with methotrexate. With a mortality approaching 90%, it can be challenging to recognize at-risk populations as oral ulcerations are absent in up to 50% of cases. Therefore, HSV should be considered as a cause of undifferentiated acute liver failure with an immunocompromised host where the in incidence of HSV is the highest. And although acyclovir is not indicated in all causes of acute liver failure, such as those with known drug toxicities, empiric treatment should be strongly considered with an early initiation as that has been found to significantly reduce liver transplantation and all-cause mortality. And although the sensitivity of PCR is over 90%, suspicion should remain high despite a negative test in the right clinical context, such as an immunocompromised host with or without oral ulcerations. Therefore, early initiation, or excuse me, therefore early screening should be performed with a strong consideration for early initiation of acyclovir and all immunocompromised patients who present with undifferentiated acute liver failure. Great, thank you, Dr. Linsa. We will hear from our next speaker. Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Christina Patel, and today I'm going to present my postural called Don't Go Chalk in My Heart. For this case report, I'm going to talk about a patient with Castleman's disease, which is a well lymphoproliferative disorder that generally presents with mediastinal lymphinopathy. In this case, I will talk about a Castleman's patient and the clinical reasoning that ultimately saved her life. So let's jump into the case. An elderly female with Castleman's presents to Providence St. Vincent with a subacute history of fluidic chest pain that was positional and relieved with NSAIDs. She was febrile to 101.7 and EKG did reveal new onset AFib with RBR, no ST changes. An, a CT scan was performed and it did show a moderate sized pericardial effusion, as you can see in Figure 3. However, our cardiology team was not impressed with the size of the pericardial effusion because CT scans generally overestimate the size of effusions. So, our patient was diagnosed with pericarditis and started on ibuprofen and corticine. What we did not expect, however, was the next day when she suddenly we, we suddenly discovered our patient to be in shock. She was tachycardic and had MAPS around 62, and she had a narrow pulse pressure. She was receiving several IV fluid boluses and that only gave a temporary response. So we went back to the drawing board and thought about our differential for shock. So since sepsis is the most common cause of inpatient shock and the patient did initially come in with a fever, that was our lead in consideration. However, persistent BP improvement would be expected with fluid resuscitation in septic and hypovolemic shock. Also, our patient's extremities were cool and not warm, which again pointed us away from the distributive etiologies. The next pathophysiology we considered was cardiogenic shock, which would explain with the AFib with RBR and a better hypothesis for a narrow pulse pressure. It would also explain all core extremities. However, she continued to acutely deteriorate even when we had all heart rate controlled to the 90s. So given all history of Castleman's and our working diagnosis of pericarditis, we again thought about tamponade, um, despite the unremarkable imaging from the cardiology lead the preceding day. 
After much social with the help of our nursing colleagues, we found a manual BP cuff, and we used that to, de to determine our patient's forces paradoxes value. Surprisingly, the value was elevated on repeat checks. Um, <clears throat> so we got a repeat echo, which you can see in figure four, and it did show a rapidly enlarged pericardial effusion. She went underwent an urgent pericardiosynthesis, drained about 620 cc's of burgundy fluid, and her hemodynamics quickly normalized. The etiology of her acute presentation has not been formally diagnosed, though it is suspected to be related to Castleman's disease, since many case reports have warned of this association. So what can we learn from this case? Well, shock is a common inpatient presentation, and in most cases, it is sepsis as being the underlying etiology. However, not falling prey to availability bias and recognizing the differentiating signs of shock can be life-saving as evidenced by our patient. It's also necessary for clinicians to utilize all tools in our medical toolbox when evaluating acutely decompensating patients, even if that means searching for a manual BP cuff and going back to the basics with our tried and true physical exam skills. It's also worth mentioning that, that modern tools like CT imaging can overestimate the size of pericardial effusions, and that if you are concerned about a pericardial effusion, you should go straight to an echocardiogram. And lastly, our patient had a rare disease with an obscure association that it is well documented in literature, but it's not commonly discussed. So this is just a good reminder for all of us to keep our curiosity alive and research diseases our patients have that we are unfamiliar with. Our lifelong careers of learning medical knowledge is never ending, and keeping that curiosity going can only benefit our patients. That was great, and I'm so glad you could find the manual cut. Um, the, so you said that the etiology is still uncertain. Is that because it's hard to diagnose a lymphoproliferative um, binding in the fluid? Yeah, that's a good question. And they did look in the fluid to see if there was any form of malignancy, and there wasn't anything in the fluid that indicated malignancy, but that alone would not tell us if Castleman's or malignancy is the cause of the effusion. The best way to diagnose would be to get a biopsy, which given her age and the patient's preferences, we did not do the biopsy. Great, thank you very much for your presentation, Dr. Patel. Hi everyone, my name is Michelle and I will be presenting a case titled Temporal Headaches and Blurry Vision. Is this really giant cell arteritis? We have a 44-year-old male who presented with two to three months of worsening temporal headaches with associated eye pain, pressure, and difficulty focusing. He denied feverish chills, weight loss, or sick contacts. He had no jaw claudication, vision loss, sore throat, or a cough. Two weeks ago, he was diagnosed with hand, foot, and mouth disease at an urgent care. Physical exam was unremarkable except for a maculopapular rash on his palms. Suspecting giant cell arteritis, inflammatory markers were ordered. The ESR and CRP were modestly elevated and he was started on prednisone. However, symptoms continued to worsen. So a serum RPR and lumbar puncture were done. 
the CSF VDRL was positive and serum RPR was also positive at, 500 to, at 1 to 512. Of note, the temporal biopsy was negative for giant cell arteritis. He also had an ophthalmology exam, which was negative for scleritis, uveitis, and anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, which is associated with GCA. He was thus diagnosed with secondary syphilis with a maculopapular rash, pulmonary rash, and neurosyphilis with chronic syphilitic meningitis presenting as severe headaches and ocular symptoms. He was treated with a 14-day course of IV ceftriaxone with resolution of symptoms and normalization of his inflammatory markers. Giant cell arteritis, or GCA, is widely considered on the differential of temporal headaches, especially with elevated inflammatory markers. It is often drilled in internists that GCA is a can't-miss diagnosis because of the risk of blindness with ocular involvement. GCA is considered a neurological emergency with the recommendation that treatment is initiated promptly on clinical suspicion of the disease to prevent irreversible damage, which was done in our patient. In contrast, chronic syphilitic meningitis is not common on the differential diagnosis for those presenting with headaches regardless of age. Syphilis is often called a great mimicker because it can present with a wide variety of symptoms, making the diagnosis difficult. In our case, syphilis presented with temporal headaches, blurry vision, and elevated inflammatory markers, thus masquerading as GCA. In our patient, he lacked jaw claudication, which has a likelihood ratio of 4.9, and exam finding of temporal artery thickening, which has a likelihood ratio of 4.7. Point to note, GCA almost never presents under the age of 50, so an alternative diagnosis should be considered. Because of the increasing prevalence of syphilis in Portland and that syphilis can present with a wide variety of symptoms, this case emphasizes the importance of keeping a wide differential for patients presenting with headaches, ocular symptoms, and elevated inflammatory markers. I wonder if um, it's known whether or not these likelihood ratios would apply to a patient who is this young. Hmm. Yeah, um, they, I'll have to dig into the study where they found the, um, where they found the likelihood ratios, but I'll double check on that. Thanks for this. Um, just curious with blurry vision, it's not something I typically think of for GCA. Is that, um, it, it, do you know, is that common for GCA to have just blurry vision without vision loss? Yeah, it is pretty common. And very uh, interestingly, ocular syphilis or the chronic syphilitic meningitis can also cause blurry vision as well. So it can present very similarly. Um, and it's only under ophthalmology exam where you can see the differences of like in the eye findings between the two. Great, many thanks Thank for you. a great presentation, Dr. Wen. Um, mask on or off? I think. Okay, sure. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Banu Ramachandran, and today I'm going to share with you a challenging diagnostic case. Uh, our patient was a 75-year-old woman with cyclic fevers and new onset encephalopathy, specifically intermittent confusion. 
Her story begins with a flight from Pakistan to the United States two months prior to presentation. Before coming to the US to visit her children, she'd retired from her career as a physician and had been in good health. While COVID raged through India and Pakistan, our patient had had two doses of Sinovac, the Chinese COVID vaccine, plus actual COVID from which she recovered. She wanted to go visit her children in the US, but our immigration rules required that she get three vaccinations and the Sinovac shots didn't count. So she dutifully got two shots of Pfizer, and once she got here, a Moderna booster. 24 hours later, her fevers began like clockwork at 3 p.m. daily. This went on for about 10 days, at which point she developed painful mouth ulcers, though these were no longer evident by the time she presented to RED. She also suffered malaise, anorexia, and fatigue, but no confusion or other encephalopathy. By the time she came in, though, she'd had two months of quotidian fever and was confused, a big change from her usual sharp physician self. In the ED, her son handed me a pile of papers, largely undated. They were the results of labs done earlier at urgent cares. AST was disproportionately elevated to ALT, though our patient had never consumed alcohol. She had a bicytopenia, as well as an elevated ferritin and CRP, negative blood cultures, and a negative acute viral hepatitis panel. Her family was chock full of doctors, including two daughters in the US and scattered nephews and cousins who were all physicians. Given the negative infectious workup and the elevated ferritin and CRP right after a fifth COVID vaccine, they concluded this was inflammatory and a family member prescribed prednisone 20 milligrams daily for 10 days just prior to presentation. They reported some mild improvement in her fever with this. Now it's time for the third degree. You can fill in these blanks with whatever is most evocative for you. I'll take my own stab at it. So when the patient tells you that you need to speak with their, say, grandson, who is perhaps a tarot card reader about the etiology and management of their, let's say, adrenal fatigue, you feel just delighted um, about this, or maybe you feel not so hot. Um, one of my points for today is that no matter how wild the suggestion from the patient and their friends and family, uh, we should always start out with A, and sometimes we should consider a choice D, hearing the patient or family's primary concern and considering it as a key piece of information in formulating our own differential and workup. Back to our patient. Basically, she didn't look terribly ill despite the fever and intermittent confusion. Initial labs in the ED showed transaminases nearly tripled from previously, hemoglobin and platelets low but stable, and cultures, viral panel, chest x-ray, and COVID tests showing no evidence of acute infection. Our differential was broad, and initial workup focused on infection and quickly excluded bacterial, acute viral, and parasitic causes. Plus, empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics didn't fix her fever or anything else. She adamantly denied toxic ingestion. We considered autoimmune hepatitis triggered by COVID vaccination, but that wouldn't explain quotidian fevers and seem less likely in an older person who had no history of any other autoimmune disease. As a pro-vaccine type who'd been scarred by ICU rotations, rife with lonely patient deaths, I really didn't want it to be a vaccine reaction, but I didn't want to close our differential too early. Uh, at the top of my differential was neoplasm. I ordered an LDH and a right upper quadrant ultrasound that first day. LDH was sky high. The ultrasound too was concerning for malignancy as it showed multiple masses. But what malignancy was this? In the meantime, she continued to fever. 
To make matters worse, she developed acute liver failure. As you can see, her AST, the green line, rose to above 1800, and her bilirubin, the yellow line, rose to nearly seven, lagging the AST. Her INR shot up along with these other numbers, and she was intermittently encephalopathic. Nothing seemed to be helping. She got sicker by the day. Her INR barely budged after we transfused four units FFP. Meanwhile, from her doctor daughters, it was serious third degree time. Remember that the patient's family was at bedside almost continuously during her month-long hospital course. What were they thinking about what had happened? What was their narrative? From early on, they'd made it clear that they suspected an inflammatory process. So I put together a summary statement for myself and for them. Our statements aren't that far apart, but the statement I imagine for them emphasizes the acute onset post-vaccination as well as the response to prednisone. My statement, on the other hand, emphasized neoplasm. Several days into the hospitalization, we finally got that liver biopsy. The pathology showed patchy involvement by a high-grade neoplasm. Assessment for a variety of cellular markers confirmed a high-grade B-cell lymphoma. Around this time, we began to suspect an often missed until it's too late inflammatory process that can occur secondary to a malignancy, but that has been reported in the setting of COVID infection or rarely following COVID vaccination. It turns out we and the family were both right. Let's review the abnormalities we saw early on. Many of these are common in malignancy or liver disease and taken in isolation are not particularly suggestive. Importantly, none of these are fancy send out labs, nor did any of these require completion of the liver biopsy. In particular, I call your attention to the ferritin. She came in with a ferritin in the 700s, taken a couple of weeks prior. That was elevated, but nonspecific. Had we rechecked it on admission, what would it have been? Well, on day five of her course, it exceeded 5,000, and it ultimately peaked at nearly 11,000. An earlier recheck could have been our tip-off. This is a photo of a histiocyte containing phagocytized red blood cells. Many of you have by now arrived at the diagnosis, HLH, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. This entity is rare, and its natural untreated course is nearly always fatal. Our patient lived because she was diagnosed in time to be treated with high-dose steroids and atoposide. We and the family were therefore both on the right track. Adult HLH is an acute inflammatory storm, often triggered by a hematologic malignancy. She continues to receive treatment for her B-cell lymphoma, which was likely the underlying cause of her HLH. HLH is a clinical diagnosis that uses these criteria set in 2004 by the Histiocyte Society. Many of these criteria are incorporated into the 2014 H score that is also used to assess the likelihood of HLH. Expert opinions of the precise criteria vary, however, and initially our patient met only fever and the older ferritin criterion. The other lab derangements we knew of weren't bad enough and she didn't have splenomegaly but she responded dramatically to the treatment of high-dose steroids on atoposide with almost immediate resolution of her fevers and normalization of her liver enzymes. The diagnosis of HLH thus remains a clinical one, and our patient recovered when treated with the established regimen. The first step in making any diagnosis is to consider it. Some experts suggest HLH is not as rare as we might think. Because it's almost always fatal if not treated promptly, some have argued that we need a more sensitive instrument for deciding when someone is likely to have HLH, so we can quickly obtain more specific studies such as biopsies and initiate treatment. If a sensitive test is negative, we're closer to ruling the disease out and don't need lengthy costly workup. But if a sensitive test suggests HLH is still possible, we should rapidly pursue the full workup because any delay in treatment could be fatal. 
Ferritin, a readily available test, is highly sensitive, as is CD25. Simply, we should send these when we see recurring fevers and suspect leukemia or lymphoma, or when we see liver failure unexplained by the usual culprits. A very high ferritin alone, or an elevated CD25, is both sensitive and specific for HLH. If we'd rechecked ferritin on admission and then sent the CD25, could we have cracked the case and treated her sooner? Our patient's maximum ferritin was nearly 11,000 and thus highly specific. Similarly, a CD25 level three times the upper limit of normal is over 70% specific, while our patient's CD25 was nearly 10 times the upper limit of normal and thus likely even more specific. It was on the basis of her CD25 and the ferritin over 5,000, the curative treatment was initiated. In closing, I have two key takeaways. First, we should have HLH on our differential more often, and there's growing literature devoted to improving our diagnostic criteria, so we don't miss the chance to act and save a life. Second, we should consider how often, in our own families, we or other physicians have contributed to the solution of a diagnostic puzzle concerning our loved ones. I couldn't find any data on this, but I suspect we all have a story of this sort, hopefully less dramatic, about our own families. And our patients don't need to be physicians for us to give their ideas and concerns full consideration. Thank you. Questions? Dr. Ramachandran, thank you for that outstanding case. We'll give people a moment um, to digest and see if we have any questions in the room. I will start us off with a simple question. In your experience, how long does it take for a CD25 result to return? Yeah, so I think our result for this patient came back maybe between 48 and 72 hours. I'd have to look back at the chart and see exactly when it was drawn, but it wasn't a super long time. Not weeks and weeks. Yeah. Wonderful job, Manu. Uh, what is the success rate for the treatment in this disease? You know, I'm not actually sure about that. That's something I should look up, but I will say that it seems like more often than not, the disease is missed until whatever treatment can be given is too late. Um, there's one study that reported a median survival time of, I think, something like 21 or 22 days after diagnosis, which would suggest that the survival, you know, that effectiveness is not that high, but our patient is still living and all this happened in early June, so. Yes. Thanks. Uh, so the malignancy that she has, her underlying, could that alone cause acute liver failure? Because it just doesn't seem, you know, like usually when we think of METs to a liver, um, you know, we think in the, you know, hundreds for, for the transaminase elevations. And then the follow-up to that is, you know, often for these lymphoproliferative malignancies, steroids are part of the treatment. So could it just be that the steroids would are the treatment for the malignancy, not necessarily the HLH? Um, 
you know, let me see if I can unpack that question and break it into a couple parts. That's okay. It seems like the question here is, could her B-cell lymphoma alone have caused acute liver failure? And second, could it be that steroids and etoposide, as they are part of the treatment for B-cell lymphoma, simply treated her B-cell lymphoma and therefore all this had nothing to do with her? Like, in other words, this doesn't have anything to do with HLH. It's really all explained by a particularly um, you know, vicious presentation of a B-cell lymphoma? Well, I think that this is less likely for maybe two reasons. And one is that I know that um, our oncologists didn't really see it as, um, you know, B-cell lymphoma alone doing this, right? In other words, they didn't see lymphoma or leukemia alone giving this kind of picture of liver acute liver failure, right? As you note, the, the really sharp rise in liver enzymes. Yeah, maybe like kind of chronically in the hundreds, and then gradually the person gets hypoalbuminemic and they have some coagulopathy, but not over the course of five or six days in the hospital like this. And then, um, Second, I think it's less likely because the CD25 level was elevated and the CD25 is actually more associated with T-cell lymphomas than B-cell lymphomas. And so I think that's really the thing that pushes us into HLH world. Um, that and the ferritin being so high, I don't think would have happened with a B-cell lymphoma alone. So, yeah. thanks. Hey, uh, I was just wondering, out of curiosity, with the uh, the quotidian fevers that were happening mm -hmm. uh, initially, do you think that the HLH was ongoing from the beginning of those fever spikes? Like, was that the process that was happening the whole time? And if so, uh, why wasn't the ferritin as elevated, I guess, in the beginning? Or would that have been a feature of the B-cell lymphoma? You know, I don't know if that is what, like, how long can HLH brew undetected, right? That seems like really the question here. And I'm not sure that is something that I have to look up. I have a feeling that it could brew undetected for a while. And the reason is that, I mean, first of all, all of these things started with that um, Moderna vaccine, it seemed like, or at least the family thought. And I have wondered about whether there could have been some kind of multifactorial thing, right? Like the B-cell lymphoma was brewing and then the COVID vaccine sort of pushed her over the edge in some kind of um, cytokine storm. Um, but it's also, you know, the HLH was first thought of as a pediatric disease and something that's driven by genetics. And so I would think that in those cases, people have to be steeping something before suddenly they present. Well, thank you for an outstanding presentation, Dr. Ramachandran. We'll hear from our next speaker. Thanks. All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Nate, and I'm excited to present to you a quality improvement project on increasing COVID-19 vaccination rates. COVID-19 has caused over 1 million deaths and over 1 million hospitalizations in the USA. Fortunately, vaccines provide a safe and effective method to reduce hospitalizations and severity of illness due to COVID-19. However, there are many barriers to vaccination, including lack of information and on how to receive a vaccination, and misinformation and distrust with the healthcare system. 
This project aimed to boost initial vaccinations and improve overall vaccination rates with a goal of at least 90% of St. Vincent patients, uh, PMG at St. Vincent patients vaccinated before December 31st, 2022. We designed an uncontrolled before and after study with multiple interventions. The target population was unvaccinated patients 18 years or older at PMG at St. Vincent, our outpatient medical home teaching clinic. The first intervention was a systems-based change in distribution of vaccine-related information. A MyChart message was sent during the initial vaccine distribution in late January 2021. This was sent to eligible patients explaining the benefits of vaccination in preventing COVID-19 and detailing information on where patients could receive a vaccination. It also detailed community events and locations um, in the local area where vaccines were distributed. As you can see in figure one, the first intervention um, targeted patients eager to receive a vaccination, um, those who are receptive, and then some who may have been uh, hesitant to receive the vaccination. As you can see in figure two, from January 27th to March 31st, 2021, St. Vincent had the greatest increase in vaccinated patients compared to similar PMG residency clinics in the Portland area. This makes sense because MyChart messaging may increase awareness of vaccine availability, which results in greater vaccination rates. Total vaccinated population of patients 18 years or older increased by 29% at St. Vincent, compared to 21% at PMG Northeast, 18% at PMG Milwaukee, and 14% at PMG Southeast. Back to figure one, a second intervention focused on patients with vaccine hesitancy. This was defined as those unvaccinated by September 16th, 2021. Unvaccinated patients received a second MyChart message providing updates on COVID-19, offering an office visit to discuss the vaccination and outlining community events and locations with available vaccination. On October 23rd, a third intervention was implemented. Uh, P PMG at St. Vincent physicians were invited to attend a teaching session led by, led by clinical behavioral psychologists who taught strategies for addressing vaccination hesitancy. The session emphasized non-judgmental education and motivational interviewing skills. These skills were used during the following months during visits with unvaccinated patients. During the evaluation period for these vaccine hesitancy focused interventions, September 16th to June 30th, around 11% of vaccine hesitant patients at PMG St. Vincent were vaccinated compared to 13% at PMG Northeast, 11% at PMG Milwaukee, and 9% at PMG Southeast. Interestingly, MyChart messaging and behavioral psychology training for St. Vincent physicians was associated with similar vaccination rates compared to patients at other residency programs. It is possible that the initial MyChart message targeted some patients who are on the fence about vaccination, and this could result in the remaining patients being relatively less receptive to vaccination. In terms of total vaccination, I'm pleased to announce that we met our aim of this project. St. Vincent had 92. 90.2% of total clinic patients vaccinated. This is compared with 85.8% at PMG Northeast, 74%, 74.9% at PMG Milwaukee, and 73.1% at PMG Southeast. In conclusion, these interventions may be easily adopted by other clinics. There are low cost strategies to expedite life-saving information, especially during the initial rollout of vaccinations. The implementation of MyChart messaging and behavioral psychology training was associated with the highest COVID-19 vaccination rate among patients at Providence Medical Group residency programs. Thank you. Great, great project, Nate. Uh, you may have answered this, I may have just missed it, but I, I think you said you compared 
the patient population of the St. Vincent's Clinic to other similar PMG clinics. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So my question then is, there are lots of things that correlate with people's inclination to get a vaccine, uh, it, you know, from educational status, socioeconomic status, you did a whole long list of them. Were you able to make any comparison at all to see if your own clinic population skews uh, sort of along those kinds of uh, uh, lines of people willing, a little more willing perhaps to get vaccinated? Um, we um, looked at various subgroups and in our clinic population, we did note um, disparities, some racial disparities um, and also uh, age uh, disparities. More so our older population was more likely to be vaccinated. Um, it's possible that um, our clinic had slightly higher older population and that could contribute to the higher vaccination rate. Um, that's one thing we considered. Um, the various other subgroups, we didn't find uh, anything uh, notable. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for that presentation. We'll move on. Good morning, everybody. I'm Nick Gates, and I'm presenting on my poster, Hickam's Dictum Dulls the Razor. Hickam's Dictum, a counter-argument to Occam's Razor, states a patient can have as many diseases as they please. The importance of diagnostic coherence and avoidance of search-satisfying bias is highlighted in this case of extensive abdominal tumor burden and the risk of incomplete diagnosis. A 57-year-old man came to the ER with nausea, diarrhea, dyspepsia, and night sweats. These had been worsening over the past year. Gradual mental decline, worsening anxiety, and episodes of confusion were attributed by the patient to chronic Lyme disease, thus delaying his presentation to the hospital. Physical exam revealed an obtunded, ill-appearing man, um, but otherwise non-focal exam. A CT abdomen pelvis with contrast revealed numerous pancreatic tail masses as seen in figure three on the right, a large right renal mass on the figure two CT scan, multiple hepatic masses and duodenitis. The right kidney was deemed the most amenable for biopsy and pathology returned as clear cell renal cell carcinoma, likely metastatic. During admission, the patient unexpectedly, however, developed severe hematochesia he had no history of NSAID, alcohol use, or smoking. An EGD revealed a large cratered ulcer as seen in the EG findings, EGD findings at the bottom, um, along the third portion of the duodenum and severe esophagitis uh, involving two thirds of the esophagus. Following stabilization, the patient was prepared for discharge, but was delayed due to unresolved anemia. And this allowed for our team to do a re-review of his abdominal imaging and a reconsideration of the severity of esophagitis, the duodenal ulcer, and the presence of these pancreatic masses. These combined factors decreased the acceptance that metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma was the unifying diagnosis. Our team then pursued a second biopsy of a liver mass, and this pathology returned as metastatic pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. More specifically, a rare gastronoma with associated Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. This patient was referred to a pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer specialist and initiated on chemotherapy. 
Search satisfying bias is you know, described as the tendency to stop looking for additional information once an answer has already been discovered. This is a pervasive confirmation bias, uh, you know, very prevalent in uh, physicians of today as we rely more heavily on imaging and laboratory findings to make a diagnosis. The dangers associated with cessation of thought following that diagnostic eureka moment and resting on Occam's razor is highlighted as a simple unifying diagnosis of metastatic renal cell clear cell carcinoma is certainly plausible. Hickam's dictum, however, reminds us that patients can have two primary cancers occurring simultaneously despite this rarity. A reconsideration of the clinical data towards an entirely different diagnosis with more diagnostic coherence, a metastatic gastrin-secreting pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor leading to a severe erosive peptic ulcer disease. The consequences of oversimplifying this presentation cannot be overstated as it would have led to a delayed diagnosis of a devastating but certainly treatable condition. Therefore, effort given towards resisting search satisfying bias while remembering patients can have as many diseases as they indeed well please can lead to better outcomes for everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gates. We'll see if we have any questions in the room. Clarifying point. So, how about of course, off-specific at real time? Absolutely, yes. Yep. Yeah, the, the, the key here is that we continued looking for an additional cancer, although the initial diagnosis was indeed clear cell, renal cell carcinoma. Great. I will go ahead with a brief question. Um, we sometimes think of neuroendocrine tumors as being part of particular cancer syndromes. Um, I'm not familiar with any connection with um, clear cell renal cancer. Any reason to think that there's a particular cancer syndrome at play here that could have implications for him or his family? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I do happen to know that he was followed very closely by, you know, the pancreatic neuroendocrine specialist here in Portland, and he did test negative for all of those syndromes, including von Hubel-Lindau, other um, cancer syndromes. And actually, I think the clear cell renal cell carcinoma is indeed just a primary cancer that he happened to have simultaneously at the same time. Great. Many thanks, Dr. Gates. Thank we you. We'll move along. I can see that here. All right. We ready to go? Okay. Good morning, everyone. I'm Thatcher Holden. This is my uh, quality improvement project about weight loss at the Providence Clinic outpatient. Uh, the goal of this was directed at obesity. Um, as you all know, the heart disease, stroke, cardiovascular disease, um, sorry, diabetes are all linked to obesity. And two thirds of the patients in our clinic were rated with a BMI greater than 25, uh, 25. So there seemed like an opportunity here to make a 
a change. And so there is a weight management clinic at Providence that can help patients like this because often providers don't have enough time themselves. And so <clears throat> that was the goal of this intervention. Sorry, the goal of the intervention was to increase the referral rate to this Providence weight management clinic by up to 20% um, in a year for patients from 18 to 65 years old who have a BMI greater than 35. And 35 was used instead of 25 to target those patients who would benefit most from an intervention like this. So um, the this intervention was carried out. You can see in the bottom left-hand corner, there are the, the scorecard. You can see it with the yellow and green boxes. Circled in red is the BMI box. That box will turn yellow when a patient's BMI is greater than 35. And the MAs can see this when they're rooming a patient. And then they are directed to then place the blue card, which you can see there, on the computer screen in the provider's room to cue the provider to remember to address this and potentially send a referral. A information session was given to the providers that educated them about this service um, and how this process will work and to encourage them to place referrals when appropriate. So after the intervention was uh, complete, you can see here the graph in the middle and the results, figure three. That This is the referral rate. So you can see there's three sections, the prior to intervention, the first intervention, and we actually did a second intervention. Um, it was 3% to begin with, and then up to 20%, um, and then actually up to 30%. Excuse me, I forgot to um, explain. The second intervention was a year into the this project. We did a second um, informational session to the providers, um, did a spotlight for someone who's doing really well, um, and then also touched back with the MAs to remember to do this because um, sometimes they weren't always getting put up. Um, and if you look at these in figure three, if you look at the gray boxes, that's the confidence intervals. And so you can see how um, there's a clear shift up between the, uh, the when the inter intervention started, but after the second intervention, there's still some overlap there. Um, then if you look down below in, in figure four, this is the enrollment rate. And so these are the people who were referred but how many people actually participated? And you can see that before we started, 1% participated, and then we got up to two, and then finally 3%. Um, and if you look, I don't know if you can see, but if you look at the actual dots, you can see like the number of people in, um, increased. They went to like five, six people per quarter. Each one of those dots is a quarter of a year. And then finally, um, for results, if you look at the table in the upper right-hand corner, you can see the 774 people presented who could be referred. 200 were referred and 25 people enrolled. And then it, you can see there's a BMI before and after. Uh, did not change except for the group who actually went to some visits, went down by a BMI of two approximately. So, and then I thought I'd just talk about one particular patient as a spotlight, a 53-year-old woman with a BMI of 41 who had been trying since 2016 to lose weight um, without success. And then when she was referred to this program, she was put in touch with um, bariatric surgery lost about 12 pounds before surgery, and now is scheduled for her surgery, which hasn't taken place yet. But you can see she said she's excited to try out some new recipes and start getting ready for surgery. That's just an example of the impact just from, refer from referring this patient. So in conclusion, this, there's, this QI project was a success with an increase over 20% to 30% um, for the referral rate, and that 177 additional people were referred than would have been, and 25 extra people were enrolled. Um, for future um, considerations, you may 
I would suggest looking into how we can increase this enrollment rate higher with some barriers being cost that you have to pay for the monthly meals and also just the large time investment it takes to um, for an undertaking like this. And the additional as we move forward, virtual visits become more of an impact um, and you don't have weights. You have cameras where you can't really see body habitus. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so, so those are some of the, the challenges that we can address for the future. That's it. Thank you. Many thanks, Dr. Holden, for your quality improvement work, and we'll take questions from the room. Thanks, Dr. Holden. Um, just curious, you mentioned your one patient story who is now scheduled for bariatric surgery. Do you know of your 25 that actually end up having a visit, uh, how many of those went on to actually undergo bariatric surgery? Does mm -hmm. that all qualify? Good question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but thank you for asking. You may not have the answer, and I certainly don't, even though I work in primary care every day. Um, any idea if insurance pays for <laughs> any of this? Yeah. And if not, any insights um, that maybe you've dug into as to why such an important health issue is not covered? So insurance, as far as I've understood thus far does not cover this. That's part of the conversation that's important to have with patients um, when discussing potentially referral is that it's like you have to pay for these like monthly installment of the meals if you want to do the um, there's a weight management uh, program where they do it like weekly. It's like medical management instead of surgical. Um, fortunately, insurance doesn't cover it and we don't have any like answers as to why other than you know, it's precedent um, and that it's really unfortunate. But I, I do think that's something that could be focused on in, in the future, like looking at advocating for this, looking at ways maybe to provide support for people outside of insurance, although I don't know what those are of yet, but yeah, excellent question and, and really quite frustrating. Thanks, Dr. Holden. I have this one last question. Yeah. Given um, the prevalence of obesity or weight bias in our society, and particularly in the healthcare setting, mm -hmm. Was any consideration given in the training for appropriate communication with patients? Yes, actually, the during the informational session to the providers in the beginning, there was a, um, a discussion about how to approach this subject um, and that that can be like one of the barriers to this referral and enrollment is just like how you talk about it. And if you just like send the referral and don't ask a lot of questions, um, it was actually like a five step process we used um, to discuss sort of like you know, approaching the subject, are people interested? Are, are you open to talking about this? Is this something you would be like um, interested in? And, you know, and there's actually um, part of the, we have a dot phrase that's on the blue card you can type into Epic and it would actually bring up quickly that five-step process to help providers if they needed like on the fly. Great, many thanks Dr. Holden. I think we will move on to our next presentation. All right, hi there. I'm Jacob, hopefully last but not least here. 
Um, I'm really excited to talk about my QI project, uh, Under Pressure QI Initiative to Reduce the Use of IV Antihypertensives for Treatments of Asymptomatic Elevations in Blood Pressure. So bear with me, picture this. You're on your call day. You've just admitted three patients with three very complicated different uh, diagnoses that are gonna require active management. And you get a cross cover page. It says, patient has blood pressure of 170 over 100 asymptomatic and the dreaded two words please advise um you know what's interesting is it, it seems to be that the research is pointing towards conservative management for these patients actually um management of hypertension in the inpatient setting is has been associated with many harms uh, as listed on the poster um the uh, especially the use of IV antihypertensives is particularly uh, difficult as it requires, you know, more nursing input and monitoring as well as the side effects of the medications. So the, the other part that confounds this is here at St. Vincent's, we don't even have a, a process in place to deal with either notification parameters for blood pressure or how we would manage this um, as a group. Um, so this project was uh, designed to basically reduce the use of IV antihypertensives in this situation by 50% was the goal. Um, the methods for this were interesting because we had to figure out how to collect the data in the first place. This uh, involved designing a novel data collection program where essentially we had to collect all of the patients who had at least one measurement of systolic blood pressure greater than 160, and I also did greater than 180. Um, and then we, we collected all of those and we excluded certain patients. We excluded the patients from the ICU, from the, um, the neurovascular unit, and patients with uh, ICD diagnoses that would kind of merit an IV antihypertensive. So things like cerebrovascular accident or aortic dissection or cerebral hemorrhage. Um, and essentially we collected all of these patients and then we tracked how many of them got orders for IV antihypertensives, at least one order. And we put that data together longitudinally, pre and post intervention, and then compared the two. The intervention itself was, a, was a, an education campaign, multidisciplinary. As you can see by the figure, we targeted nursing staff, hospitalists, and the residents for this. And, you know, several meetings were attended, um, as well as informational sessions were given uh, and the results were pretty compelling. So the pilot program, which was the education campaign, um, you can see is the second part of the graph um, where there was a significant reduction. Sorry, the confidence intervals are kind of small because it was a, a long project, but the confidence intervals do not overlap there. We started with 10.31% of patients with those blood pressure measurements. It decreased initially um, and then again, after the hospitalists saw this initial decrease, they decided to adopt an incentive program that was actually region-wide in the seven Providence hospitals in the area. And after that incentive program, you can see it dropped even further, all the way down to 7%, uh, which was significant as the confidence intervals don't overlap. Um, the you know, the take home point here is that if we really want to reduce the use of IV antihypertensives for this indication, the best way to do it is to take a multidisciplinary approach to make sure that everyone on the care team is evolved. We see that it can, can really help um, decrease these orders. 
Uh, and then again, uh, getting administration on board is also super helpful because they, with the incentive program, we were able to augment and sustain uh, success for this project. Um, the, unfortunately, we didn't reach my 50% goal uh, reduction, but I do believe that this is attainable in the future, especially with the trend that we see and the incentive program in place. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Feeney, for your presentation. This is the last presentation. We have just a couple moments left if there are any questions in the audience. ask one brief question. Um, thank you for highlighting the importance of the interdisciplinary approach for a shared mental model, perhaps development of protocols. Um, did you encounter any particular um, barriers or anticipate future barriers for those who carry your work forward? Yeah, so the biggest barrier that I think was uh, hard to surpass was the idea that, and maybe the false belief now that these elevations in blood pressure are inherently dangerous in the acute setting. Um, that was kind of the, the big question that a lot of, um, for example, the nursing staff was very concerned about and that we learned that these blood pressures are elevated and we need to do something about it. And although that may be true in the outpatient setting, the research really shows that there's no significant difference between uh, adverse events associated with elevated blood pressure in the inpatient setting when you treat it versus not. So that was a that was a big kind of hurdle to get over to show everyone the data and say, hey, look, this actually isn't true. Thanks for this. You mentioned the uh, systolic blood pressure uh, parsing out your groups and then the inclusion criteria between 160 and 180 systolic. Um, did you end up analyzing the data and was there any difference in those groups or? Yeah, so the initial uh, stratification was we, we picked all patients above 160 and then we further looked at all patients above 180 and um, we decided to go with the 160 group because we were still seeing orders in between the two and so the 160 group was was the one that we we went with for kind of the whole project. Um, if you look at both the way that the, the data collection is set up, if you look at both of those groups, there's actually an overlap because anyone above 160 is or above 180 is also above 160. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. Great. Many thanks, Dr. Feeney, and uh, thank you for all of our outstanding presentations today. Best wishes at the Oregon ACP later this week. Yeah.